0: What truly really matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries.
0: 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage.
2: Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 13 of the Education Research Reading Room. The podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this episode of the ERRR. This episode we're talking to Professor Russell Bishop. Russell is based in New Zealand and has a long history of teaching and working with the first people of New Zealand, the Māori people. Currently Russell is Foundation Professor for Māori Education in the School of Education at the University of Waikato. He is also a qualified and experienced secondary school teacher. Prior to his present appointment he was a Senior Lecturer in Māori Education in the Education Department at the University of Otago and Interim Director for Otago University's Teacher Education Program. His research experience in the area of collaborative storing as Kāpapa Māori has given rise to national and international publishing. Some of his books include Collaborative Research Stories, Culture Counts, Changing Power Relationships in Classrooms, pathologizing Practices, Culture Speaks, and in 2010, Scaling Up Education Reform. Russell's work with literally thousands of teachers across New Zealand and across the world, and on a more personal note, I'm very grateful for how Russell's work has helped me to see the students from minority groups at my school and my relationships with them in a whole new light. The first article that Russell nominated for this R is entitled, Relationships are Fundamental to Learning. This very readable editorial discusses the ubiquity of teachers' often subconscious deficit thinking, also referred to as deficit theorising, in relation to students from minority groups and the impacts of such deficit thinking on relationships with and the educational outcomes of these students. For those who would like to take a deeper dive into this topic, Russell also recommended an additional paper, which we link to in the show notes, and this paper is entitled The Centrality of Relationships for Pedagogy, the phanonga Thesis. This second paper is an eye-opening synthesis of qualitative and quantitative research methods that really brings to life some of Russell's theories in more of a quantitative approach. For me, it felt like this podcast interview took a little while for us to really get going with the conversation taking a bit of a wavering course for the first portion of time. So, I encourage you to stick with us and hang around for all the nuggets later on in the podcast, especially when Beth pushes Russell to articulate some of the finer points of his ideas and theories. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 13 of the ERRR with Professor Russell Bishop. Russell
3: Bishop
2: Russell Bishop, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Good. That's the, that's the official, the, meant to be the official sounding introduction. So the first question we ask uh, our guests when they come into the Education Research Reading Room is, if you're at a party and uh, someone someone says, hi, Russell, how are you going? What, what is it you do? What's your answer?
4: Quite a few things, really. Um, I'm an Emeritus Professor pro- at uh, University of Waikato in in Hamilton, New Zealand, uh, that's where I live, in Hamilton, New Zealand. Emeritus Professor means that I'm effectively retired from actively working at a university, but I now act as a consultant to a company in Auckland that does professional development programs for uh, teachers here, in Australia, Canada, I still do quite a number of um, keynote addresses. Uh, Like I've been to Ottawa, I've been to Canada twice this year, and that's pretty much what I do now. Is uh, and look after grandkids really?
2: Fantastic. So could you tell us a little bit about your story of how you came to be doing what you're doing now? Because you've got quite a long history in education. Yeah. Um, So maybe let us know where you started out and a little bit about the journey from. To hear the,
4: the journey and the um, and the outcomes all sort of fit together, um, and I'll briefly, if I could run over what the sort of the narrative of the of the program, and it all sort of fits in. And so, when I, I've I've been, I'm currently writing another book. I, I've written quite a number of books around this whole topic over the last twenty uh, odd years, and I'm currently writing a. Um, a book which is to summarise it all, really. So what have I learned in the last 25 years? Right. And I'm writing writing it for teachers. Um, I've had enough of writing for academic colleagues, et cetera. They can get on, read that stuff, and, you know, that that, that AERJ, your journal article, for example, is one of the last I've written for them. So now I'm writing more for teachers like the, the first one that you've got there. You know, relationships are... Fundamental to learning. I'm now writing that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and I'm, my target audience is teachers, because I, I want to work with teachers. I want to keep working with teachers, and so I think one of the best ways I can do that is by uh, getting a book out, and so working with other groups, people like I've just been working in Canada with a group called Roots of Empathy, where they bring babies into classrooms and and engaging young uh, indigenous and migrant students with babies classroom and, and seeing how they can develop uh, an empathetic relationship with the child and they got me to go over there and talk about how you can actually work it. you can improve relationships in classrooms and how that how that will improve the engagement of the non-engaged students in classrooms and so on anyway this, this whole thing goes back a long time it goes back to when i first started teaching myself and that was uh, in the nineteen seventies, for goodness' sake. And I went teaching in an area where there was very high Maori population, and I was alarmed that Maori kids were not doing very well in school. This is all in, in that paper that you've read. I presume yeah. you read the one about
2: yeah, it was relationships
4: the being fundamental to learning, right? I'll, I'll skip over this this very quickly. The um, I was very alarmed to find that the children they were not doing as well as the European descendant children. And I was amused at the why it wasn't I asked my colleague. They said it was that the children were culturally deprived, families didn't care, all the usual sort of stuff around deficit theorising. And and yet when I spoke to the students, they told me that it was in fact the relationship they had with the teachers. So there was this divide between
2: the two. Different stories, yeah. Oh,
4: yeah, well, that's… That's been the constant, uh, the one constant right through the whole 40 years of my doing this work has been that generally educators talk about the deficiencies that Indigenous and migrant students and uh, ma- marginalised students bring to the schoolroom, uh, Whereas the, the Indigenous students and marginalised students talk about the negative relationships they have with majority culture teachers. And um, I'll come back to that point because that is crucial. That's the crucial understanding about what, I, uh, what I've been on about for years, basically. Mm. It's the fact is that, that teachers actually create their own problems by the, dis- the, the discourses they draw from to explain their experiences of, of, of working with Indigenous and marginalised students. Mm. In fact, the marginalisation is a function of the relationship that's developed through... Uh, negative discourse is being drawn upon. Um, what happened after that was I, I I left teaching, became an academic, and I, I got involved and in, uh, started doing a PhD on researching in Māori ways, and you quoted a bit of that in the uh, the thing you sent me, only today. Uh, and basically what I was saying, what I identified there was where, where researchers work within a Māori context that is a context that Māori people can understand, make sense of, through their own cultural ways of making sense of the world, then they were able then to interact with Māori people in such a way that they would support what they were doing, and then they would have positive outcomes. That, that's sort of a, that's a long story cut and really be short. Um, I then went on to researching in schools and extrapolated from that notion of the the context creates a setting where you can interact effective and and promote better outcomes, and that so that, that context allows effective interactions. Was the hypothesis, if you like, and um, you read about stuff. Cool, I've got those flash, flash names for it and all that sort of stuff, but that doesn't matter at this point. What it matters is that. I then got an opportunity to test the hypothesis, and that was the start of the project that I was the director of for oh, 12 years, called uh, Te Kotahitanga, which was the, uh, um, uh, the Māori word means uh, unity of purpose. Kotahi is Māori for one, uh, and tanga is a noun ending. So Kotahitanga means working together, basically, to solve to solve problems. And um, I suppose better late than neither too, I should, like you did, acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of, uh, of your area because it's, uh, although I'm not there, I'm talking in their area, so kia ora, kia ora kia o koutou, mō koutou marakitanga kia hau, e di ahi ahi nei, o te pō kia kia koutou, kia rātou, tēnāra. Now, so I, I got on with, I was just saying hello in New Zealand Māori, by the way. Sure. It wasn't, wasn't anything, wasn't anything you, you have to cut it. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was just saying hello and nice to see you and thanks for your hospitality, basically. All right. Yeah. Which is, which is a culturally appropriate way of introdu- introducing oneself in this country. So, uh, if, if you want some examples of what I'm talking about in terms of the context being understandable to Māori, well, one of those relationship-establishing contexts is acknowledging the, um, the land of the other people on, on whom you're standing. Acknowledging their, uh, 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 the Māori word ranga uh, tanga sovereignty, hmm. uh, the English word is sovereignty. Acknowledging their
3: ownership of that land. So I was
4: able to actually test the hypothesis when the start of the Korte Tanga by asking whole lots of people what they were saying. Basically what they were saying was the same as the as the teachers and the kids had said 20 years before. And that was the teachers kept on saying it was the kids that were the problem. And the teachers kept on saying the kids kept saying it's not the teachers that are the problem, it's the relationship we have with the teachers. Some of our teachers we get on really well with and we go to their classes. But the majority of our teachers we don't get on well with so we don't go to their classes they're selective wagons if you like
3: okay selective waggers, great um
4: and this was in secondary schools of course so using that framework where context allows interactions which leads to improved outcomes and the specific ideas from the interviews that we undertook in 2001 and 2004 and also from the literature, there's a tremendous amount of stuff in the literature on this, as you'll know. We developed, um, well, I developed uh, an effective teaching profile. So what would it look like if you were going to be a teacher in this sort of area?
2: Great question.
4: Um, that, was in, that then was, was the, the central part of the project, the Kotei was supporting teachers to implement that profile in their classrooms. And the closer they could get to that profile, the better the kids did in their, in their classrooms. And, and basically, the profile consisted of uh, establishing a context for learning in the classroom that was based upon positive relationships, caring, high-expectation relationships, non-deficit theorising relationships. And within that, you could then start to interact in ways that we know promote learning. Now, you know about John Hattie's work. Well, we were able to, his work uh, provides us with the evidence that the second part of the, the programme, um, that is those um, strategies we know that make a difference for children's learning are able to be implemented. So that a very important uh, hypothesis. We were then able to test the hypothesis and you've got the graphs there. I was, you sent them to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, the first graph, which that's them. That's the ones. And it shows along the bottom um, the levels of familiness in the classroom. We're talking about the context for learning is one where, as I developed in the, in the research work I did back in the, in the 90s, that said that when you established a family-like relationship in your classroom, in your research setting, you were able to work more effectively with Maori, mm-hmm. and that was whether you were Maori or not. So it didn't matter who you were. It was did you work within cultural and ways of understanding that were, that Maori people could understand? And one of the really obvious ones that Maori people can understand is familieness,
3: mm-hmm.
4: is an extended family. It's a culturally preferred way of interacting and relating. So. What, we, what we're suggesting in the hypothesis was that if you were to do this in a classroom, you would then be able to use uh, those strategies that we know make a, pedagogies we know make a difference. So you'll see by the graph that there's two major outcomes to this graph. One is along the bottom is the level of familiness. Are people able to establish a family-like relationship in their classroom? And this has got these are characterised by caring and high expectations and non-deficit theorising about kids, et cetera. And then on the vertical axis, you've got those interactions we know make a difference for students. We, I've called them discursive interactions. And you can see there that there is, a, there is a correlation between the horizontal axis and the vertical axis. So it's about 0.4 correlation. And that is, as people get better at implementing a family-like context in their classroom, they are more able to use, uh, to implement, and use effective pedagogies. Mm. Now, what's really important about that graph is that there's not one in the upper left-hand corner. Mm. There's a big gap there. Now, there's 3,500 observations there, uh, 1,700 teachers over, uh, I think it's about 30 schools over different time frames, and you name it. So. What that tells us is that if you have a low level of family-like relationships in your classroom, you are not going to use, and I would suggest not be able to use, those pedagogies we know will make a difference for students Mm. learning. So you will have to stick with traditional pedagogies that we know from Hattie's work and from interviewing students that these don't make a difference for Indigenous and marginalized students. And then we wanted to know, so what's the probability of that happening? And um, James Ladwig from Newcastle University did the analysis of this for us, and he shows that the probability is that the, as, the, as teachers get more able to implement a family-like context in their classroom, the chances of them using uh, effective pedagogies, increases at an increasing rate. Mm. So it's an exponential growth. Mm. So the probability of taking place, it means that familiness is fundamental to being able to implement those um, effective pedagogies.
2: Mm. And we saw the, same thing, saw the same thing with engagement as well, wasn't it?
4: Exactly the same with engagement. And the probability of it happening is, again, exponential. So what the major message here for teachers, and this is why I'm writing the book about this again, so I want to get it to teachers, that the really big major message here for teachers is that if you want to use flash pedagogies that make a difference for kids, then you've actually got to, there's a major step you've got to engage in first, and that is you've got to be able to establish a family-like relationship in the classroom.
3: Mm.
4: Now, I don't need to go on, I don't need to go into the flash pedagogies because everybody knows those. It's using prior knowledge, providing feedback feed forward, uh, co-constructing learning, all those sorts of things that John Hattie's got in his books and stuff. We all know about those but what we don't know about is how to implement and how to create a family-like context in a classroom. Mm. That's tricky
2: stuff. Mm, that was That was my next question. So you said this effective teaching profile is kind of the tool or the, uh, I, I don't want to call it a form but the tool or the framework yeah. that you went into these schools and worked with these some three to 4,000 teachers with. If I, was a t- if I was a teacher and my school had decided to sign on to this program and, yeah. it, was the fir- and it was the first day or the first few weeks or whatever, and you came into my school and you said, this is the effective teaching profile, how would you communicate to me around the effective teaching profile and how would I start to learn about it and start to change my practice in line with it to change the relationships in my classroom?
4: Two, two big things have to happen. One is that we would take, uh, well, we actually trained a whole lot of people to do this work, but essentially what we started off doing this is, I, we started off ourselves doing it, the people who were originating and developing all this sort of stuff. The first thing we would do is we, we took teachers to a workshop in a Māori setting at at a marae and the aim was to make people comfortable and to be welcomed and to allay any concerns and worries. In fact, what we were trying to do was to establish a family-like context. So we then, uh, we worked that, took two or three days to do that, we worked through the various dimensions of the effective teaching profile and we showed them how we would be supporting them in their classrooms, and we, would, we showed them how we would support them to bring about change in the way they were relating to and interacting with young Māori people. Now, then we go back into the schools and we started with some observations, we used an observation schedule that we developed, and um, the observation would give us an opportunity The observation was based around the effective teaching profile. So we were looking for how well are you implementing the various dimensions of the effective teaching profile. And we'd we'd mark it all out on like scales. So we're getting some numbers out of all this. So it's easy to get a number now and then compare it to how you're getting on later. Mm -hmm. And we would then be able to give teachers feedback on how well they were progressing along the various continuum that were made up that you put into an effective teaching profile. And um, then we also uh, used uh, professional learning communities in the school to use the data from how students were going to get a whole class of teachers together to work out how they could actually implement the effective teaching profile more effectively. Mm
3: -hmm. This
4: stuff gets a wee bit sort of uh, uh, confused after a while. Yeah. so the first time teachers were subject to the particular process, they were very nervous and because many teachers don't have other people in their classrooms very often. Definitely. Particularly not given feedback on their own teaching and so on. But after the second time, people would say, oh, that's really good. Yeah, please come back. And by the third time or even by the sixth time or something, when they didn't actually need it anymore – They
2: would say, "Oh, uh, I want, I want, don't stop." Something you want to be hearing? Great, it's good stuff. Classroom observations could be dangerous, right? Yes. And the conversations and the, the the discussions that have after them can go very right or very wrong. Do you think there was some particular ingredient to the way that you trained the people who carried out these observations and feedback sessions that meant that it was a safe kind of environment, or it was it was done in such a way that the, the teachers were kept saying, keep going up. That feels good. Yes. As you put it.
4: It's an excellent, excellent question. It's a crucial question. And, and the, key, the, the key to it is that we as uh, professional developers or providers of professional learning opportunities or whatever, it was really important that we were able to uh, do exactly the same with them as we would expect them to do with students. Mm-hmm. And that is, it was really important that we were able to establish a family-like relationship with the teachers, uh, just as we expected them to do so. And we interacted with them in ways that we expected them to. Uh, we used pedagogies that we, would, uh, we trusted they would use with, with, uh, with students, that we knew would work, that improved learning. And so we didn't stand at the front and give them lectures on cooperative learning. We used cooperative learning strategies to inform them of various new ways of doing things. And we also really, really important that, now. See, the dimensions of a family-like context for learning are really important to identify. The first one is no deficit thinking. Is that teachers who are a part of this should should reject deficit thinking, deficit explanations for explaining their experiences.
2: We haven't, we haven't defined the term. I, I, all the people who've read, who've read the article will, have, will be familiar with yeah. deficit thinking, but perhaps for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read the article, could you define what deficit thinking is, please, Russell?
4: Sure. Deficit thinking is focusing upon the deficiencies or the supposed deficiencies that young people bring to the classroom. Because of their supposed limit the, the the supposed limitations of their family, of their socioeconomic status, of their well, we used to have it about there used to be a gender, bigger gender issue, uh about women, for goodness sake. We had it for our education system for years and years and years. Girls could were only ever educated to be nurses and teachers. Because that's girls were thought to do so that was, that was a really good example of deficit thinking of focusing upon the deficiencies and, and what it does of course is it creates barriers artificial barriers that limit the, the way that people interact um, I'll I, I
3: give you some anecdotes about it Please. that'll clarify okay? Great uh, when I was in Canada uh, a few years ago
4: um, I've got a lot of tape. I can talk all night on this stuff. When I was in Canada a few years ago, I was out on the, um, in the Queen Charlotte Islands and I was talking to a, a school principal there and I said to the school principal, how are the, the Indigenous students, a lot of Indigenous students on in the Queen Charlotte Islands, Haidawai? And I said, how are the kids getting on? Um, and they said, oh, not very well. Uh, I said, how come? Oh, they suffer from depression. I said, Oh, what's, uh, oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, what are the, why? Why, what are, you know, what are the symptoms of this depression? Uh, is it, is it your clinical depression sort of stuff? And they said, it, It's caused by the fact that it's, it's dark for three months of the year up there. It's way up near the Arctic Circle, you know. And, um, it's also light for three months of the year too, so they didn't mention that. But they said it was, it was dark for three months of the year. And I said, oh, okay, so what are the symptoms of it? And they said, oh, it's, they're listless and bored and they can't focus on their learning and uh, they don't want to engage with the teacher. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So I went away to the next school and I met up with a native assistant teacher there. Like in your country, the Aboriginal people are only allowed to be assistant teachers in Canada. And, um, And I said to Tyler, his name was. I said, "How long have your people lived in Piedipway?" And he said, "Oh, twelve thousand years or so." So the anthropologists, archaeologists, and so. I said, "So you guys been uh, depressed for twelve thousand years?" (laughs) And uh, he said, "No, no, no." I said, "Well, when did this depression start?" And he said, "Uh, "1769." I went. I went to another part of Canada. Um, Some time later. And um, like I do every time I get a chance and speak to the school principal, I say, How are the Indigenous kids getting on at your school? And um, the, the teacher, the, the school principal said to me, Oh, not very well. They don't do very well in the state mandated tests and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, how come? Uh, well, they suffer from uh, uh, fetal alcohol effects. And I, I said, "Is that the fetal alcohol syndrome? I heard about that."
3: Mm.
4: And they, because that's a medically diagnosable circumstance, tragic, but it's it's a medical diagnosis. Eh? And um, medically diagnosed, um, you have to fix up my language a bit sometimes. That's all right. Uh, and I said, "Oh, okay. So who who defined it? Because I knew the doctors had defined the syndrome, and they said, oh, the teachers we have defined it because we've observed.'" That these people, I said, what are the symptoms? And they said it being the listless and bored and inability to concentrate and it can't interact with the teacher. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I've heard of this before. And uh, then the next day, I was, I was fortunate enough, uh, the, uh, the Monday after the weekend, I went to a classroom and there was a teacher teaching away and they were teaching um, subjects and predicates doing English grammar. And they were on the whiteboard and they had a they were underlining parts of the sentence doing the bits of the subjects and the predicates and stuff like that. And uh, the the, the Indigenous kids were all in the classroom and all sitting there. And and then after about 15 minutes, I went up to my colleague who I was with and I said, I think this fetal alcohol business might be contagious (laughs) because I'm… I think I've got it. I think I, I'm finding myself. I'm pretty bored and I'm listless, and I, I can't engage with the teacher, and I, I'm, uh, I can't make any sense out of what's going on here. I can't see what the hell is it, this lesson's all about. You know.
2: Yeah. Right. Deficit theorizing. I think. I think we get it. I think we get it. I can carry
4: on if you like. I went to uh, <laughs> ask the same question whenever you go to a school, and the Aboriginal kids in the school ask the school principal. How are the Aboriginal kids getting on? Aboriginal is the same term they use in Canada. And you'll get the same answer. I've had the same answer. I can give you six or eight anecdotes like that. And each time there'll be a different reason, and then, but the symptoms will be the same. And yet you go into the classroom and subjects and predicates on a Monday morning, it's no surprise that within a quarter of an hour, the... Uh, I was at I was at a school just recently uh, in Canada again, and I was watching a, a lesson being taught by a young woman in a secondary school situation on social studies, on um, the climate change, you know, really topical stuff. And um, again, I tell you, I got I got, a, I got a, another dose of that uh, fetal alcohol effects. Boy, I tell you, I had a bad dose of it that day too. Uh... anyway, Christian, there you go.
1: I was just gonna ask if your definition or your understanding of the deficit thinking can apply to disengaged students in general, because um, I know from my brief experience, I hear a lot about teachers, when they talk about disengaged students, they go, oh, they're just lazy, and you know they don't care about school, and all the students that are performing badly at uh, school, they just don't care, they just don't care enough, and and that's the reason why they're, they're disengaged. Is, is that a similar sort of uh, thing that we're talking about here, or Or, yeah, just clarifying your understanding.
4: Why not? It's exactly the same disease and it's exactly the same symptoms and it's exactly the same impact. It has the same impact because you then ask the teachers, so what can you do about it? How can you as a classroom teacher make a change to the educational outcomes of that young student? And by drawing upon that particular, that's a set of discourses. That's a discourse. Of 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 identifying deficiencies. I'm looking at the wrong camera. Sorry. And if if you're looking at if if those particular deficiencies, if you if you suppose the deficiencies, if you then say to that person, Well, what can you do about it? They will then say to you nothing. Essentially, they'll say nothing. There's nothing. What can I do? Well, look, I've interviewed I've interviewed hundreds of teachers like this, and they just keep saying to me. No, there's nothing we can do. They throw their hands up at me like this and they say, well, what can you do? They, they, and then they come up with, well, you've got to change the school you've got to change the system. You've got, to, you've got to put more money in. You've got to have less hours of teaching or you've got to do something this and that. Whereas when you go, when you go and talk to the students themselves, you go and talk to these students that are supposedly deficient and you ask them, you say, you getting on at school and, and they will tell you not very well and you say why is that they'll give you a different story and the story they'll give you will be about the fact that they don't get on with the teacher and the teacher thinks they're dumb and and they will this the negative relationship they have with the teacher the fact that the teacher doesn't care for them has low expectations of them thinks about them as having deficiencies and not potentialities these things will all create a relationship that ends up with the kids walking out, essentially.
2: Self-reinforcing, self-reinforcing.
4: It becomes self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Yeah, I, w- I would love to reify this even more, Russell. When we talk about these teachers that you were training in, in this program, in line with yeah. the Effective Teaching Profile, could you name three things um, that those teachers would be doing differently, like explicitly, like actions, words they were using Something like that. Three things I would be doing differently at the end of the programme versus at the at the start. I'm just thinking about my own classroom and how I can and how I can be doing this better myself.
4: Yeah. One I was I observed one teacher one day uh, come into the classroom and he said, Okay, this was a classroom where the, the kids told me that they learned three new things every day. They loved the classroom. And uh, he said, I'm not gonna teach you anything today. And there was just a bubble of consternation around the room because they really liked this classroom. They loved this place. And he said, no, I'm having you on. You're going to do the teaching. So what he was doing was signaling very high expectation that you can be using a a cooperative learning strategy called Expert Jigsaw. And the Peel Project in Australia, you'll know about that, has, has a tremendous number of cooperative learning strategies. Cooperative learning strategies are an incredibly effective way of engaging learners in, in learning in, in a, co- a collaborative, cooperative manner. And yet, it's never used very much. And it's never used very effectively when it is used. And the reason it is not used is because people are not signaling that they are, or not developing, a, uh, a family like context in the classroom. And by family like context, I'm saying, that the, the, demonstrating on a daily basis that you care for the kids, even, even if you have to say it out loud, I care about your learning. And some of the kids come in and say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, we're not doing this. You've got to, just got to say something like, whoa, that's really important stuff. This is really important. I, I mean, I, I observed another, I talked to another teacher one time, very, a, a maths teacher, a very clever, clever way of dealing with this whole issue. She said, there are three levels of, of work in this class. There's easy, medium, and hard. Easy is what we all do. We have to do, you know, to learn the times tables and stuff. Medium is stuff that we can all handle. Hard is the stuff we find difficult. And she said, if you're finding it difficult, it's because it is. Because it's level three work. It's difficult work. And so the kids knew that it wasn't them that was the problem. It was the work that was hard. What a wonderful bit of psychology that was. And she was signaling to the kids that she cared about their learning and that she cared, she had high expectations of them, and she knew how to organize the learning. She knew how to create a, a space within which kids then learn, and then she could actually start to interact in, in discursive ways. Very clever stuff. It's two from other questions, though. No,
2: uh, it's good.
1: I've, it's more just my thoughts are kind of brewing, and – Is most of your research um, based in secondary schools? Is that right? Or have you done some experience in primary schools as well?
4: Yes, yes, we have. Laterally, uh, I left university in 2014, uh, 13 actually. I retired in 2013. I wasn't planning to retire. I I got a bit ill and uh, I had to take a year or so off. And then when they said, would you like to come back? I said, no way there's too many meetings and stuff at universities you know mm. so uh i much prefer to be a consultant because i can uh, i can go and do what i want to do now it's, it's it's a very delightful yeah. time of life it's, it's a, you're heading towards this yes. keep, keep yeah. it in, in-
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the pit the pinnacle moment of our futures um i i guess so as a-
4: you don't have to go to any meetings anymore
1: <laughs> but um yeah
4: what um i the, I work with the company in Auckland called Cognition Education. So does John Hattie, by the way. And uh, mm. we've been working, they have been working in the Northern Territories in primary schools there. Mm. You call them primary or elementary? Uh, primary. Okay. Primary. They're working in primary schools there and in secondary schools, and they're finding the same approach works mm. just as well in a primary school and as in secondary schools. Okay, so although it, came out of, although it came out of secondary schools and it came out of multicultural settings, it's now been shown to work in primary and secondary schools and in Australian Aboriginal settings and in Indigenous settings in Canada as well.
1: Um, I guess one of the questions that I am kind of framing in my mind is um, to do with the discourse that children might bring to the classroom and yeah. um, how, those, how they're, of the dispositions that they carry as a result of other variables beyond the classroom like their parents or um, other family members or what what impact that can have on on the teacher's capacity to develop that family-like or uh, context or the familiness um what 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 impact is there there
3: it's whatever it is
4: whatever impact that is it's a hell of a lot less than people make it out to be. I don't don't know how to quantify it. All I know is that qualitatively, it's a heck of a lot less than people presume it to be. Because I know, and I've just seen this in so many times, that when teachers get rid of the the deficit notion about kids, and I'll tell you how we do that in a minute, Um, when teachers get rid of the deficit notion, they find that they're able to create a relationship with children that, that overwhelms all the other supposed problems that the children are bringing to the classroom. So all, all I know is that, I, I, I can't say it again, that it's the same thing, that there, certainly there will be some things that influence the, the development of relationships at school, et
1: cetera,
4: et cetera. Yeah. But Commonality. Yet to, I've yet to meet parents that don't want the best for their children. I've yet I've yet to meet parents that don't want their kids to get a good job and get a good education. And and, and I've and I have yet to meet any Māori parents who don't want the best for their children or who don't understand the very clear impact that education has upon your life's chances. Mar- and, you know, the marginalised in our society understand that only too well, well, that the privilege that education brings to people, and yet to be denied that privilege through some false theorising about, um, about their supposed deficiencies is so much, is so much rubbish.
0: Oh, it's Beth speaking. Um, the first question that I had you signalled that you might be leading up to answering anyway it was about how do you transform those deficit assumptions in teachers and the one thing I picked up from that short article was you mentioned introducing them to narratives of um, Maori student experiences and making them more familiar with what it feels like you know to be a student in that context. Is there anything else? I mean, I'm thinking about teachers who might have been interpreting their experiences through the same prejudice for decades, you know, who really set in their ways. It seems quite hopeful that they'll just suddenly change their minds about things that they're very certain of, about why um, certain students aren't achieving.
4: It's a a good question because it's another really crucial question, all right. Again, it's not as simple as giving people the narratives of students' experiences to read. Um, we've put it into a book called Culture Speaks. There's a whole book of these, of narratives. And, and we do it in all the, any other program we do, uh, any other location, we've done the same thing. Uh, in Northern Territories Australia and in, in the various sites in Canada where we've been, We've used the same thing. We've used the stories of students' experiences to provide teachers with a precarious experience of what it's like to be uh, a marginalised person in their classrooms. And the vast majority of teachers say, goodness gracious me, that's terrible. How can we, what can we do about it? And we say, well, I'm glad you brought that up because we've got some ideas. Have a look at this. And so it's very non-confrontational. The whole idea of, of confronting people and saying, oh, you're a bunch of racists and you really need to change ways is, uh, doesn't get you very far with teachers. You may have found that yourself. It doesn't get you very far with anybody I've found. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. It takes me a while to find that out, but uh, it takes them a while to actually get there. But, Beth, the, the really crucial part of it all, is that you couldn't actually do that unless you had established a family-like relationship with the teachers with whom you're working. So we take the, the teachers to a marae, we make sure they're comfortable, they're well-fed, and we explain to them that we're there for the betterment of a group a group of people who aren't doing very well at, at school. And we're not there to blame anybody. We're not there to pillarise anybody. We're there to make a difference for Māori students and the, or Aboriginal or whoever, right? So we get them on side. We say, you're here. We're here to work together. We're standing side by side. We're educational professionals here. We're not into ga- gaming and blaming and all that sort of stuff. We're here to make a difference. And we're gonna, we are caring for you. We've got high expectations for to be able to do it. We manage the whole thing well and we never use deficit thinking about people. We never use deficit theorising about teachers. We say that everybody's capable of this and I'll, I'll show it, we'll prove it to you. And we can show them the evidence from past experience so on.
0: Um, would teachers typically be um, involved in that experience because they chose to be or is this something that the principal has decided and they get? Dragged into it because I'm curious whether that affects how they respond to the experience.
4: They've got to be. have cho- got to choose to come into it. Yes, got to choose to. So, but like in a in a, in a high school, we would say it's like any change process. There's the early adopters, and then there's the the next group that, that sit back and wait, and then there's the there's the third group that sit back and say, oh well, okay, I'll see if there's anybody, you know, what harms happening, etc. And the third group's also a bit like um, uh, one of Dr. Seuss's characters, Mudluck the Turtle. You know, he comes up every year or so and he says, Has anything changed? If not, I'll go back down, you know, hoping, hoping to avoid it, you know. Because there's, so there's so much change going on in schools all the time. We, we suffer from what Michael Fulham terms um, initiativeitis. Far too many initiatives going on in schools and only last for two or three years, then, boom, the next one comes out. So uh, I don't blame teachers not wanting to be part of it, but what we do is we provide early adopters the opportunity of being the first cohort, and then we work with them, and then gradually the next group come along because they can see that no one's been harmed, no animals were hurt, process, and uh, and so on, and um, and by the third year, the everybody else just comes along and says, "Oh, it looks very useful," and it actually is very helpful because. Or I mean the problem is that one of the things that Maori students do if they don't like a classroom is they make life health for teachers. They are, they don't sit back and say, Oh, we're not doing very well. They do a hucker, they get into it. And so they and then so the people who are not in the project see that the classroom that the teachers in the project are having is actually getting on with learning. So they want a bit of it as well. They they come along. So It's it's not a problem. But choice is about it's what it's about. Choice.
0: Do you find um, there's like an age factor to the teachers who are the early adopters? Would there typically be younger student, uh, younger teachers, or is it is that not a thing?
3: They tend to be younger and female. Yes. Like you.
0: I see.
4: (laughs) (laughs) They tend to be younger and female. Yes. That's the, first, that's the early adopter group, and they also are generally the most successful group. They are the ones that really get rid of any rubbish that's holding them back, and they're the ones that really get stuck into it. And we've done some profiles of the most successful people. Uh, having said that, one of our most successful teachers out of the three to 4,000 that, we've been, that went through the project with us was a woman from India. And uh, she had a heavy Indian accent, and everybody said, Oh, she'll never be able to teach Maori kids because they can't understand her. Or anything. Look, she is the most successful teacher that I've ever seen with Maori students. And so successful that at the end of one year, she was nominated by her class for a Prime Minister's Award uh, uh, for a spectacular teacher. They loved her. And the reason was, she was prepared to change. She created a family-like context in a classroom. She went to our facilitators and said, "What can I do to make a difference?" And they they showed her how to do it, and they worked with her and supported her, provided her with feedback and feed forward, and they co-constructed ways together. And she came out of that year just
3: smiling, and so did the kids. But having said that, the next group. The males and the and that. Sometimes the males take the the least the least the group that rushes
4: forward the slowest is the older males. But my word, speaking as an older male myself, uh once we get there, we're really good. It takes us a while to get there, but we're really big once we get.
0: There. Sure. <laughs> that kind of that does link to another question I had. Um so I guess, yeah, you've got a very optimistic um, way of framing this and, you know, the path forward by saying that it's not about teachers' attitudes and personalities. Yeah. It's about this discursive position that they take and it's very much about choice. Yeah. But then you're kind of identifying these, you know, differences with age and gender and how that plays into the way teachers respond. Yeah. I, it seemed to me like you're kind of letting – People off the hook a little bit with saying that it's not about their attitudes and personalities, or you're being a bit too optimistic about how much they can change. I don't know. What's your experience been around that?
4: Asking there, really? Um, mm-hmm. You're asking there. I'm like, contradicting myself, but I'm not really.
3: That's one of the things you're asking. Really, it's.
4: Them, write those questions down. Deconstruct your questions. There's quite a lot of complexity in your questions there. The, the, the notion that, that I might be contradicting myself, it, it could be right, but the, the first point, one of the first points you raise in there is a really important issue. Is it their personality or is it this it discursive position they take? If it's a discursive position, you can shift it. You can do that. You can change your discursive position overnight. Is
0: that different to an attitude, though, a discursive positioning versus an attitude?
4: Um, yes, it is different from attitude because an attitude is uh, something that people tend to hold very, very strongly, whereas a discursive position is something that people have picked up as an explanation that is in the, is in the atmosphere. It's just around them the ball top. So an attitude tends to be more part of yourself much more part of your personality than, than, a, dis, than a discursive position is. So you, you can change, and I've seen teachers do this, and they've told us they have done this, change their discursive position overnight by reading some of the narratives of, of, of the kids' experiences. Whereas attitude are very difficult to change. Attitudes towards towards uh, Indigenous people, etc., etc. they're more difficult to change. Uh, they're not. They're not impossible to change.
0: So your view is that the majority of teachers, or even the vast majority of teachers, are limited by this discursive positioning, rather than some kind of deep-seated racism. Is that what you're saying?
4: Absolutely. That's yeah, nail on the head.
0: Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's very hopeful. Yes,
4: it's very optimistic. And I tell you why it's optimistic. Is it because it works? And 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 it, we have used. Uh,
3: as I say, um, three or 4,000 teachers
4: and the fifth, um, the fifth phase of the whole project. Each phase, we got um, Maori kids doing much, much better in their classrooms than they had been doing previously. And um, in the fifth phase, we got Maori students in, in national examinations doing three times better in the project schools than Māori kids in a comparison group of schools. So there's a norm reference standardised test of, an, of a national standard that Māori kids are doing much, much better on than Māori kids who are not in the project schools. And the only thing that changes in those schools is the teachers' discursive positioning and the way they therefore react, relate to, and interact with. Murray students in their schools and their classrooms. And everybody else I may mean,
2: add. Everybody goes up. Cool. Holy moly, Russell. I think a, I think a penny has just dropped has just dropped for me. So we've been thinking here, and you know, before I was like, okay, Russell, you gotta you gotta name three things for me that these teachers are doing differently. And I'm looking for all these things, like what are the actions that the teachers are taking? How what are they saying? What are the words they're using? But actually from what you just said then about this discursive positioning. That's not what it's actually about. And and I'll refer to one of the quotes from your article here. You said teaching occurs, progress is evaluated, and practice is modified as a direct reflection of the beliefs and assumptions the teacher holds about the learner. And that's a quote from Bruner. And and what I'm what I'm gathering here is it's not actually about having a focus on how you can differently act in the classroom. It's having a focus about actually changing the way you're thinking about your learners. And from there, you will naturally change the way you relate to them and it will have the outcomes that you're talking about.
4: Yes, the very simple test for that. Very, very simple test for that. Is that how come teachers, are mainly of European descent, which is the most of our teachers are, how come in a top and expensive, we call them decile teen schools, How come they get on so well with those children? And how come those children are doing very well? How come, for example, New Zealand education system and the Australian education system turns as one of the best education systems in the world? So how come these these teachers, if it's the teachers that have got a problem, there's a problem with teaching, not the teachers. Let me get it clear, clear. It's a problem with teaching, not the teachers. If, if the problem is with the teaching, then how come we have a really, really good education system for most of the kids? It's, it, the, the point being, Gloria Ledston-Billings, who's a, a, a black American educator, asked the same question. She said, if, if we know about, we know how to improve learning in our education system. We know the strategies. Look, You've got John Hattie's books, meta-analyses, 800 Lincoln studies, and we know what makes a difference. How come we don't see that in the classrooms where you've got black American kids? How come it's not used in the classrooms where you've got Maori kids? How come it's not used in the classrooms where you've got Aboriginal kids? And the reason is, is because the teachers are not able to relate to those kids in such a way that they will be, that they will be enabled to interact with them in those pedagogic ways we know make a difference, and the reason why they can't relate to them is because they think they've got deficiencies. And if, and if, and if I think of you that you have got deficiencies, you would very soon find that out from my actions and pedagogies I'll be using I'd be using, and from the tests I was giving you and. There's a good Simpsons uh, episode on this. Bart Simpson understands it very well. Bart Simpson was put back in class, and he said to the teacher, just let me, let me get this again. You're going to make me do grade three all over again, and but only this time I tell you more slower and the same stuff, and I'm going to be able to catch up with my peer group at the same time. Is that right? Bart Simpson knows the answer.
0: Well, Just based on what you said there, I feel like um, there's something that, I don't know, it doesn't quite sit well with me because I feel like it really is overlooking a lot of serious structural disadvantages that exist, you know, in the lives of certain students and within the schools that those students go to. Um, And it seems like it is a bit simplistic to just say, you know, it's all about the teachers and their attitude towards the students because some of the things that I've experienced in my school... And, you know, um, I guess, you know, there's this serious lack of resources and, you know, with some of the kids being in out of home care and experiencing family violence and, you know, having caring responsibilities, all these things that these disadvantaged students are facing, there doesn't seem like there's enough Resources put towards support within the school. You know, there aren't the kind of breakfast programs or lunch programs or counselling and people to go to the students' homes, all that stuff. We just feel, I feel like we're really understaffed and unable to provide some of those things that really make a difference for those students. Um, Because I feel like overall, you know, our school does quite well. A lot of the students do do very well, but it's, you know, a minority of those students that are really struggling and it's often for those reasons which seem to be quite external to what's happening in the school Um, and then I guess the other thing is you know within those schools you often have a lot of really inexperienced teachers coming in and I hear about this a lot in the states as well um, because they don't have the same kind of big budgets they end up hiring graduate students too many of them who don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to implement those strategies so they're just overwhelmed and overworked and they don't have any support um, so yeah all these sorts of things I think are so important I really get frustrated sometimes that there seems to be too much emphasis on the teacher and the role of the teacher and how well they're doing and it's almost like blaming the teacher when really they're kind of operating in these impossible circumstances especially yeah the graduates who are expected to write a curriculum often and do so many different things that is just physically impossible
4: the same question, and
0: so, what are you going to do about it? Well, I don't know. I, is that something that that I don't know? You've experienced within this work. I mean, you've seemed so focused on this teacher strategies. When you've come into these schools, have you ever thought, oh, it's, there's a lot of other things going on here as well, or we need to address these other issues in some I'm, way? I'm, I'm glad to brought that
2: up. And can I can I add something to that, Russell? Because because yeah. you have actually touched on that yourself in in this article, and and so I'd love for you to address kind of the the i guess socio-political or resource constraints that Beths has just talked about in relation to what you've also written in your article and what you read in your article was what what precludes significant advancements being made in addressing the issue of disparity is that the discursive frameworks of those proposing the solution remains one of neocolonialism that continues to serve the interests of the dominant elite and really I mean we're talking about resource disparities and things like that so I think that very much fits within what Beth's talking about so you have talked about that in your article So how do you marry those two things together, the socio-political context, but as well as the, so what are you gonna do about it?
4: The first thing is I find that to expect um, classroom teachers to do anything about all that stuff would be mind-bogglingly difficult. And I, I just heard on the news tonight 50% 50% of our teachers leave teaching before they have done five years of teaching. So half of our new teachers don't last longer than four years and they go off and do something else because they find it just too difficult, as, as you're saying, Ben.
3: Um, the, the second issue of about, if I believed in that social, that I would, Part of me thinks you are absolutely right
4: that the, soci- the socio-political structures are so limited. And however, I have seen circumstances where there has been attempts made to pump the money into schools that have been non- non-modif- non-modified schools where the pedagogies remain the same. And what's happened? For example, I went to some uh, some schools in Utah, uh, and the state average funding there is three thousand per student, and in the indigenous schools it was eight thousand per student. Tremendous difference, and the schools were incredibly well resourced. Computers coming out the doors. There was a, a you name it was there, and the results, the outcomes for the indigenous students, was the same as the next state. The lousy, lousy results. The the vision of resources, the the restructuring of the curriculum, the um, whatever changes like the provision of extra materials, et cetera, et cetera, didn't make a jot of difference. So it's it's. I'm afraid uh, from that. Ex- from my experiences. And what I've seen in circumstances, um, it doesn't make any difference. I, I'll give you another example in our country where we've got a big discourse in our country about uh, improving the cultural understanding of young people or, say, of Indigenous people in this country. And so now we've got schools that are running um, cultural revitalisation programs, language programs and uh, cultural dance and singing programs, etc. And those schools are having no great having no great impact upon how kids are doing in in maths and science and stuff like that. We still aren't getting Maori kids through schooling. They're still not getting through what their parents aspire to get them into. That is, the aspiration of Maori parents is for a good education and a good job. So I'd, I'd be worried that, that, Beth, you're taking on board all those issues that are um, really – well, look, I, I, you brought up something, and I'm, I'm not trying to be patronising here. I'm just saying that we came to exactly the same realisation, or I, I must admit I came to that after realising getting – once the first started off, the first thing we tried to do was to work on changing the pedagogy that was going on in the schools, improving uh, relationships and improving interactions in the classroom soon realised that that wasn't enough. And you're quite right, it's not enough. And so I then wrote another book called Scaling Up Education Research, where I developed a model um, that's a seven point model. I don't know if I mentioned it in those articles or not, but what they're basically saying, that AERJ article is really just part of the story. Because all we're saying, all I'm saying in that article is that you want to make a difference pedagogically for children, you do it within a relational frame and using an interaction pattern such as this. However, if you wish it to be sustained and to spread it across other schools, you've got to have the change taking place at a, um, uh, at a school-wide unit. And you've got to have, a, a, these are the dimensions of it, and that is the goals. You need goals being set at the school or to improve the educational achievement of the indigenous population. They need to be realistic goals, they need to be set, and they need to be adhered to. Everything that doesn't uh, uh, contribute to that, you, you, you get rid of it. And I'll give you an example of a school where they first started off where Maori kids were, 24% of them were achieving at national examinations, and they then got into this approach where they started setting goals for their Maori students, uh, and, and now achieving in the 80 in the 80%iles, 80 80% 80 percent group. So they've gone from one in four achieving to now what's that? Um, four out of uh, eight out of ten, four out of five Māori students are now achieving at these national examinations, and they're also getting stuck into their culture and language because revitalisation of language and culture comes from people feel. Uh, um, not just good about themselves, but they also feel adequate about themselves and not just discarded. It's not just something that you do because you can't do anything else with these kids, as what's happening in a lot of our schools. So it's goals, it's a pedagogy of relations, it's, uh, uh, it's institutionalizing changes in the school so that teachers don't have to do all the things you're talking about. That teachers should not be the repositories of blame Teachers should not be the repositories of change in the school. Teachers should be able to get on with teaching for goodness sake. Shouldn't all the other peripheral rubbish things they have to do. Um, they also need um, these change dimensions that need institutionalised. It needs spreads that other people involved in this. You need evidence. You need good systems of evidence so you can actually use the professional community approaches, etc., uh, and so on. Uh, there's that model there. And we found that when we introduced that model into schools, the schools as a a whole became much more effective. So, yes, there is an answer to what you're talking about, Beth, and it's not to dump it all onto teachers. And the last thing you want to do is to blame teachers, because this is not a blame game. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, When I first started this project in 2001, I was very much on the outer with the teachers' unions. The teachers' unions thought I was a teacher basher and they didn't trust me. And in fact, they um, they tried to stop the whole project. Now, the U teacher unions, this is 12 years on, are very much in support of my work. And I am a favorite of the teachers' unions in New Zealand because I make a difference uh, the work I do makes a difference for teachers and schools and kids. So much so that the new government that just was elected in our country a while ago is re-establishing the whole project in, in the country. They're going to refund it, the programme. But they wouldn't be able to do that if the teacher unions thought that it, that it was teacher-blaming. So please be reassured that it's not blaming teachers.
1: I guess to come back to where a lot of the listeners would be uh, sitting right now and going, well, what can I do in the classroom? It comes back to those three points of, you know, focus on the relationships, be caring, high expectations, and develop that family like context.
4: You've got it there at the end of that
3: article. Where's the article? Here it is. Here's the article
4: you're looking at.
1: Yep. Yep. Right. Oh,
4: no. Well, at the back of it, see, uh, what I've, I haven't been. Sitting around for the last four years, I've been actually doing some other work. And what I've that's developed... It. Yeah, that's it. I have been a fair bit of sitting around, I must admit. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, We've got to
1: write it all, right? You what? You've got to write it all at some point. Got to be uh, some sitting around at some know. point.
4: <laughs> Trying to write a book is hard work, I tell you. Yeah. Particularly when there's lots of other, much more attractive alternatives. You know. But never mind, I'll get on with it. Um, What I found at the end of phase five Mm. was that, and I started working in um, Australia and and, um, Canada, was that, in fact, what had happened in the project was there was an artificial binary had been created where teachers did one thing and leaders did another thing. And that sort of systemic structural change dimension of that Capulcio model and the scaling up model was been seen that just that leaders do that and teachers were doing the effective teaching protocol. So really I said, no no no, that was never the intention. That teachers and leaders have got to do the same thing. Teachers are leaders. Leaders are teachers. Students are leaders and students are teachers and so on and so forth. So what I've done is I put the whole lot together and made an integrated model. And what you've got there at the back of this paper is an integrated model which shows that and and so now instead of talking about teachers, we're talking about leaders of learning. So everybody is basically some some form of leader of learning. You're, you're working with another group of people in a relationship where you are trying to lead the learning of others. If you're a principal, you're trying to learn. Your your job is is not to keep count of the of the toilet paper and the uh, see if the roof's nailed on the on the school etc. Your job is to create context in the school where actually where, where teachers can do their job, and um, and that's the structural issues you're talking about before death. And if people don't do those things by setting goals, by creating institutional structures whereby teachers can do their job effectively, then then teachers won't be able to do them, and so on and so forth. So uh, and likewise, those things can also be applied in a classroom where children can be taught. About goal setting, the importance of it, because it orients your actions and institutionalising things, and so on and so forth. So, uh, basically, that that's what I'm up to at the moment. That's all I'm writing about at the money. So it does answer your 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 very important questions, here, Beth. That it does address those. That and I keep coming back to the same issue, and that is where people implement this stuff, even in the so-called most deprived areas of our country, and we've we've got. We've got socially constructed deprivation in our country that we've never had in, in my lifetime. And yet we've got children in those schools that are being, they're achieving very, very, extremely well um, because of the way that the school and, and the teachers in the school are relating and interacting with young Arab people. And we've got another question. So, yeah, I have another question about um
0: what it means to be setting up this family-like context. Yes. Um, and I was a bit unclear about that when I read um, the article, but I think you've kind of cleared it up today and you've said, yeah, as was just said <laughs> before, it's about high expectations and care and non-definite assumptions. Yeah. Um, but what about um, the teacher's relationship with the child's parents and carers? Because that was what immediately came to mind when I read that and I thought that must be a really important part of um, what teachers do. What has been your experience with that?
4: that is if teachers can't relate to people in those ways, or they don't understand how they can learn to do those things, that they have a, they have a fractious relationship with parents and kids, because often the parents have got different aspirations. If, if a teacher has a deficit view of children, parents are going to get upset. When a teacher has a, has a potentiality view of children, and uh, parents are going to be very supportive. You look, you take a quick look at where do, have you got many Indigenous kids at your school, or groups you'd call marginalised, or have you got any bunch of kids that aren't doing well at your school, for example? Okay.
0: Uh, yes, I do. I think everyone here probably would.
4: Okay. All right, let's say you're in that. Yep. Where do the parents of those school of those children? What part do they play in the life of the school? They'll play some part in the life of the school. Where do they? Which part do they play? Where do they go? Where do you see them?
0: Could we each answer this one? Or I
4: don't mind. We answer it. I know the answer already. So that was a, talk, a, a question. question. Oh. Sorry.
0: I feel I feel like there is quite a bit of engagement. I think um, I think there is quite a lot of parent engagement at my school, and one thing that we have is the Thursday market, where you have a lot of parents um from different cultural backgrounds participating and selling things, and yeah, so that's one area in which they all come together, and you know you do have a lot of parents hanging around in classrooms sometimes, but I'm not sure what other schools are like
2: i'm I'm really glad we've touched on this. Russell, because I was literally on Tuesday afternoon, I was sit- sitting in the staff room with two of my mates. We we're kicking a ball around. It was about 6 p.m. And we were saying, wouldn't it be great if, if we could engage the parents more? Um, one of my mates was going for a student management role, like a pastoral care kind of a role. And he was saying that that was something he really wanted to push. And we were trying to think of ways to engage them. But we were also, maybe we were, you know, playing into this deficit theorizing. you up Oh, no, you're right. Maybe we're playing into this deficit theorizing, but we were saying, you know, a lot of these parents, they're, they're working blue-collar jobs. They don't have a lot of, you know, autonomy around when they work, when they don't work. Yeah. Something, be- yeah. something before school is going to be a challenge for them. Something after school is often going to be a challenge for them because many of them work late, work night shifts. And we were trying to think of a way or a format of something of en- engagement, but we found it really hard. Also, we've got additional challenges with, you know, um. People come from uh, language backgrounds other than English. There's communication challenges. So, you know, I would, I would, you know, throw the question back at you and say, are there any great models that you've seen um, in these kind of um, socioeconomic contexts that can bring parents more in?
4: I know a very simple. I know a very simple, very successful model, and it's called um, relationship-based leaders of learning profile. When you, when you implement that in your classrooms, it's just here in this booklet here. When, when you implement that in your classrooms, the kids will be successful. And when the kids are successful, you can't keep the parents out of the school. When the kids are not successful, you can't get the parents into the school. You have to do sort of things like have market days and stuff like that. But... If you are going to be – if you're going to have – that was a
2: quick that was cheap job. That, that, that was a bit rude, Russell. Come if
4: on. If you are going to – if you really want parents to be engaged with your school at an a, as an academic institution, because that's what schools are, then you need to make sure the kids are successful academically. And when, you're, when the kids are successful academically – and I don't mean just by saying – Here's the standard the kids have got to reach it. You've got to be able to show the, the parents that the kids are making progress from where they were to where they are now. And if you get stuck into some interactions, patterns that you can use cooperative learning, um, uh, feedback, feed forward, um, co construction of, of, of learning, etc., with people, co constructing curricula there's all sorts of things you can do. When you do those, you really find that kids rocket ahead, so much so. That you'll have difficulty keeping the parents out of the school which is
1: not a bad thing to have. no absolutely not and from coming from a primary school context like i'd say i'm in a school which uh, does a very um we have a very heavy parent involvement in the school and it's to the student's benefit um and there's probably a, a obviously the difference between investment by parents in primary compared to secondary um but the one one thing we do we, it all starts with the learning and it's about communicating their goals um, we have individualized learning plans for every child wow. we have um, celebrations of learning where it's all about sharing the students uh, portfolios and the, and their work with the parents yeah. um, and doing it in a fun manner all these sorts of little events which encourages parents into the community yeah. um, and into the classrooms and actually getting them through the door um, and then there's obviously also just having open open door policies um, for encouraging parents in before and after school yeah but I've got to say there, there comes a time when the pressure is on the, pe- I'm sorry, on the teachers as well where it can be almost overloading because there's a lot of stakeholders invested then, um, you know, multiple bosses. <laughs> oh, I agree.
4: Look, I just, I just think that's too much. Yeah. As a teacher, I couldn't be bothered with all that
1: stuff. <laughs> so what's the fine line then, Russell? What's the fine line? What's the, what's the median? What's the fine line?
4: There's no fine line. Get on with the job. Yeah. The job not to do all those peripheral things. We, we spend a tremendous amount of time in education on peripheral things. But really, the job of teaching is, is getting on with the kids and using interactions that we know will make learning improve. I mean – are you showing? The, are you using all these things to show how kids are being successful, or is it, is it window dressing?
1: No, it's a, it's about success. It's about making sure that we have goals, making sure that there's evidence that, that tracks the goals, and communicating that success with the parents.
4: Okay, that's, well, that's,
1: yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. that's core cool business. Yeah, that's As, right. That's exactly that's cool what business. we're about. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Core cool business. I yeah, and and it's, it's diverting away, like it's, it's changing the way that we work away from, say, the classic old parent-teacher interviews, which, which didn't have great value or benefit back to the student. So, so we're, we're moving from that to more a focus on learning.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, those, those old classical things went out with Noah and the Ark, you know, but that's what you've got to get down to is the core business of teaching. I and mean, if you go to a doctor, you want them to know their stuff. You want to go to the best doctor with the, giving you the best outcomes possible. You don't want to go to somebody who's, you know, setting up so many other things that they can't do, the core business of teaching. I mean, Richard Elmore's written about this for many, many years. He's worth reading. You asked me about people to read and people to catch up on. Richard Elmore's stuff. He's retired a long time ago, but his work is still very good stuff. Jerome Brunner. I mean, never a truer word has been said, written by Jerome Brunner. He wrote that uh, "Culture of Education" in uh, in 1996, in his, when he was retiring. But um, boy, that was a, that's an excellent book. If you really want to get your head around education, that that's a that's a wonderful book. The Culture of Education. Cool. Who else? You've got lots of good a- academics in, in Australia too, of course. Um, James Ledwood, the guy that did some work with myself on that. There's, there's some really good Aboriginal academics, um, John Lester at Newcastle, um, Mark Rose down in... Um, We're in Victoria. You're, you're at, um, yeah, he's, he's somewhere there, Deacon or something, is that another one? Yep. Yeah, yeah he's Deacon. Oh, he I don't know. There's, there's some goodies in our country too, of course, but Alan Luke, he's in Australia, up at QUT. This stuff's pretty good. Norman Denson, anything you can get your hands on by Norman Denson. Heard of him?
2: Nope.
4: Christine Slater? Have you heard of Christine Slater?
2: No, you've just this is this is the next year's worth of E episodes right now. <laughs> Russell, so thanks. This is yeah. great. I know exactly who's yeah. who's, who's lined up. Tell Brian Brayboy.
4: These are these are um you hold it up and you can take
2: a photograph. Here you go. Oh great. You've 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 written the list for us, okay. We'll We'll make sure – I'll make sure I track them all down. I did ask you. You're
4: asking to, you asked me to. It's one of your last questions that
2: came. It is the last question. It is the last question. And we're, and we're coming up on it. I'm, so, I'm trying to marry two things together that you've been saying. You, one said once you get the relationships right, yeah. you, know, yeah. you, you won't be able to keep the, the parents out of the school. But then at the same time, you're saying you don't have to worry about all the window dressing and all those activities in the Thursday markets and all that kind of a thing. So, what does that mean? Does that mean – you're teaching, Russell, and the, and the parents come and you say, hold on, I'm teaching. Um, I'm doing core business right now. What, like, what, is, what does this actual engagement look like in schools in the way that you envision it looking like when, it, when it's happening properly?
4: I don't expect parents to be coming into my classroom and I'm, I'm trying to teach maths or something. I mean, if they want to, they're very welcome. But the, and, and they could certainly be involved and, and and participate and all that sort of thing. But
2: what does that mean by be involved and participate?
4: I'm worried. I'm really worried about there's another there's another myth I think developing in education that somehow if we get parents engaged, that all of a sudden uh, kids are going to do better. Well, no, it's not. Certainly not at um, at secondary school. Adolescents don't want to be near parents. For God's sake, they walk a bloody Half a block in front of them when they're going out, they don't want to be near their parents and stuff. They're, they're very uncool, these, these parents. They don't want to be near them. So, I mean, but look, there are structural ways you can do it. There's academic counselling is one that comes to mind very quickly where, where um, uh, people have a, set aside a whole day where families can come in and, and go over the work that, that kids are doing and the progress they're making and sort of the stuff that Anthony's talking about, you know, um i i I just don't believe that the current mythology about get the parents into the schools and things are going to come right is really going to work i think it's another um peripheral activity we've been through so many peripheral things we think structural change is going to i mean we have in our country for god's sake we have in our secondary schools they have all changed over their lunchtime. Their lunchtimes are now, after, they have five one hour classes a day. And they found that after the third, after the lunchtime, the fourth class was a bit disruptive. Because the kids had been out, they had a bit of freedom. They come back in. And so what they did is they changed the lunch hour to after period four. Mm. And then there was only one class after lunch. Now, if you think about it, you're laughing now, you think about that. That is completely utter rubbish. And look, all it means is that it's contributing to the obesity issues, of course, because uh, um, kids are now having two lunches, because you can't go to one and thirty in the afternoon without lunch if you're an adolescent. You've got to eat constantly. And so now they're having two lunches and they're getting putting on weight, and you know, we've got other problems coming out of it. So a structural issue like that somehow supposed to, be able to change education outcomes. Mm. Oh, what a load of wish. Mm. We've had so many structural changes and things going oh, I think this is mm. get the parents into school and everyone's gonna come right It's another one Got of it. those yeah. wishful thinking, that's what it is. Magical thinking if mind calls it.
2: I could continue asking but I think we've I think we've covered enough, Did I say enough? on this <laughs> parent involvement topic for now. Um all right, we might move to the, a few closing questions then, Russell, if that's okay with you. <laughs> the first of the three was um, what advice would you give to your first year, well, I could say either one, uh, your first year teach yourself or your first year research yourself or both even? Establish relationships. Establish relationships. Yeah,
4: learn how to establish. Yeah. And, and it's, I, mean, it's, I don't want to go and say it again but – Reject deficit explanations for learners' learning. And if you find yourself drawing upon deficit explanations, you will suffer because somebody will get their nose out of joint because they won't like it. So reject those things. Two, show that you care for the people that you're working with and nurture them as learners, including their language and their culture. And if you don't speak their language and their culture, we'll work out a way you can communicate
3: with them. Other people do. Um,
4: voice and demonstrate high expectations on a daily basis. And ensure that you can manage a classroom. The number of people that I've seen trying to teach who don't know how to teach, don't know how to organise what's in the brewery, is, is sad.
2: Organiser what? People who don't know how to organise a what?
4: Bust up in a brewery. You know, there's another two before Bust up in a brewery? Oh, okay, got it. But if you're sending this off to the ether, I don't want to be accused of using bad language on a, on a uh, public document or something, you know. Um, and the, another one, too, is pretty important. And that kids have told us this. The teachers need to know what they uh, are trying to teach. That's quite a good one, and you. And if you actually look at it, most primary teachers don't know how to teach maths, and we and we say, goodness me, we're having terrible problems with mathematics in our country. It's mainly because teachers avoid maths because they can't do it themselves, and it's not because they can't do it. It's not because they're dumb. It's not because it's just because they've never been taught in a way where they have confidence in mathematics. I've seen some of the. Some of the most successful classrooms that I've been in have been mathematics classrooms. And some of the most disastrous classrooms I've been into over the last 12 years have been mathematics classrooms. And the differences: the teacher and the successful one knows how to create a relationship and interact with them in ways that we know promote learning. And in the other classrooms, the teachers don't know how to do that. So... Whatever way you do it, I don't know how you can do it, but whatever way you do it, that's number one. That's what I'd say. If you really want to be a successful teacher, do it. And I mean, lots of people do it and children.
2: Now, the second question was what is your information diet and, and what do you read? But before we do that, I wanted to kind of hone in a little bit. If an individual wants to change their own kind of deficit thinking about minority, minority or marginalized Uh, individuals. What is the one thing that you would recommend they read in order to do that? Culture Speaks. Culture Speaks.
4: Beth wrote it down before. Okay. Culture Speaks um, published by um, uh, oh god what's it called? NZCR Okay. Yeah. Read that. It's the stories of of mari kids' experiences of being marginalized in secondary schools.
2: Fantastic. That'll,
4: that'll get you thinking. That'll get those people you're talking about thinking.
2: All right. It's on the list. Um, Good. Is there, anything, is, there, is there anything you read? Uh, what's your information diet like, Russell?
4: My information diet is basically is children. I, I talk to children. I get most of my information about education from children, because I find most of the stuff that I get from adults is um, tainted with uh, structuralist uh, deficit theorising. Okay. Uh, why we can't and it's really basically I keep on I keep on hearing from my colleagues why we can't do things, and yet I worked for 12 years. Um, in schools that showed us very clearly that you can do things, mm. no matter what happens, no matter how lousy the circumstances are or whatever the place is. But I don't bother reading that stuff anymore. I pick it up every now and then and I think, oh, my God, nothing's changed, so I don't bother reading it. I basically read what kids say. Mm. And uh, I, I listen to children. I've to kids ever since I started teaching and I, because I asked them, I said, how, what's it like to be a Maori kid in the school and if they say lousy, ask them why and ask them, so how would you fix it up? They say the same things. Fix up the relationship. We're in there. Because we want to be there. They want to be there. You know, very, education is very important, I've been told.
2: Mm. <laughs> Definitely. All right, and the, and the final question was you might have covered some part of this already but Russell, do you have any final last calls to action, anything that you like would like our listeners to, after they've listened to this today, go away and do?
4: Teach our kids well. Teach our kids properly. Okay? Give our, give our kids a chance. That's, that's what I'd say. Give our, kids, give our kids what they do as citizens of, of, well, in your case, Australia, in our case, New Zealand. Um, just that's what I ask. I mean, their parent. You ask their parents, and their parents will be, their aspirations will be for. Uh, they'll be of the highest order. And all I ask is that you match those aspirations. And you don't do it by having endless meetings with the parents. You do it by focusing on the core activities of teaching, which is about being leaders of learning through establishing relationships, family-like relationships and interacting within those relationships. Very simple, very simple. Just that's all I'd say. Do your job, do it properly, and you will see great outcomes for our kids.
2: All right, Russell Bishop, thanks so much for your time today. I guess what's really really struck me is the way that you champion the voices of the students and really everything. Every part of your research and every message that you've been communicating today, it's not from some kind of highbrow, ivory tower or anything like that. It's really everything and you've just just alluded to it then comes from those voices. So, thanks so much for being, um, thanks for showing me another way of, um, of thinking and approaching education research and, and I hope you continue your fantastic work. Nice to talk to
4: you. Lovely to meet you all. Good luck. I also like them to teach it, not only kids. So. <laughs> so, thanks very much. Lovely to talk to you all.
2: Kia ora Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR Podcast with Professor Russell Bishop. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. If you're an ongoing listen, a fan of the ERRR and value it as a professional learning resource, a one-off or monthly donation would help me to cover costs and help the podcast to be more sustainable in the long term. Check out patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thank you for your time in listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.
3: This podcast is
2: part of the Australian Educators Online Network,
3: aeon.net.au.